welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle, along with my co-host, Rachel Santizo. Hi, Rachel. Hello. I'm, I'm putting you right on the spot and shocking you right off the bat. Have yes. you ever smoked pot? Yes. Okay. I have as well. I haven't recently because I've been in, in recovery for a long time, and, I, I'm, and I'm trying to stay totally sober. But Describe the way you felt when you smoked pot. Okay, so interesting enough, though, I think I have a different effect than most people. When I smoke pot, I actually get paranoid. So it gives me a paranoid feeling, and I'm looking out the windows, and I'm wondering what's happening. So I actually get paranoid. Okay, I, I get, I, I think what is stereotypical, I get sort of laid back and my eyes puff up a little and I say, wow, I don't feel like doing anything except eating Doritos or something. Right. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is there was a new study that I came across yesterday of 20,000 adults that they followed through a 10-year period of, of uh, pot smokers versus non-pot smokers. And this shocked the hell out of me that they claimed that regular pot smokers tend to exercise more than non-pot smokers. I'm pretty shocked by that too. Who did this study? I, it, it was a national study by a magazine called Health Day. Interesting. But the thing is, they don't give any explanation as to why, because I think we all have this image of the Cheech and Chong movies where they say, wow, man, you know, that kind all of stuff. smoke coming out of everywhere. Right. So... So just because somebody regularly uses marijuana doesn't mean they're a couch potato eating Doritos. Interesting fact. It is. So if anybody out there has this story, then we'd love to have you on the show. Right. Yeah, that's true. Office. All right. The question I always ask, what are you wearing today, Rachel? Well, Randall, I'm wearing a unity shirt. So just like coming together, being one, you know, like giving love, like love and tolerance for the world. And so... Yeah, uniting makes the world a better, peaceful place. Gee, if everyone in the world wore a shirt like that and believed in its message, we might have a better world, do you think? Absolutely. I'm pretty sure I know. Of course, being a former news guy, I'd say if everybody believed in that and that's the way the world was, we wouldn't have any news to report. Ooh, I think that's, that's fair as well, too. It would all be like rainbows. Yeah, <laughs> it would all be it would all be happy news, and you'd say all these wonderful, uplifting stories, and people would leave watching a newscast saying, "Wow, I feel better about the world." Ooh, that's an interesting thought. Hmm. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure that's going to happen in our new yeah. new future. All right, we've covered pot, we've covered your T-shirt, and we've covered how to improve the world. Let's introduce our guest. Today, we get the honor of hearing from a woman that is an incredible leader. I like to call her, um, she kind of has this like boss status because she's a leader and she's empowering and she holds boundaries and she's just an overall fantastic woman. So without further ado, Sherry Moreno. Hello, Sherry. Hello. Thank you. That was a beautiful introduction. I heard you wrote it for Rachel to read. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> that was very, very nice. Thank you. So you haven't always been this wonderful, uplifting person, I presume. So, no. 
So could you maybe maybe just recap a little of, of your past life and then we can get into all the, the reason Rachel said all those good things about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I have a very similar story um, as we all do. I started using um, substances at a relatively young age. Um, it, it started with, you know, weed and, and alcohol and over-the-counter pills and junior How young? high. How young? Um, junior high. So okay. about 13 is when I was smoking weed on the weekends with my friends, um, drinking alcohol, taking over-the-counter pills, um, getting suspended from school. I was a fighter. I was, I was very, I was just a troublemaker, a rebellion, um, just had a lot of energy as a, as a kid. And um, I came across meth when I was about 14 years old. And literally, I remember very vividly the very first time I ever used it, it, I never, I just, it was as, if I could use it, I would. If I wasn't in detention or if I wasn't in a juvenile program, I was, I was trying to get my hands on, on meth. And so Why? Um, it, it just, it, it gave me this feeling that I never had had. And I struggled along, or I mean, for a lot of my life as a young child, just kind of feeling like I just really didn't fit in. Um, I come from a very diverse family. My mother has four daughters, but we all have different dads and each of us are different ethnicities. Um, and I was, so I'm, my, my lineage, my dad is Spanish, but out of all my sisters, I look white. I'm, I'm the whitest. I had light hair, light eyes, light skin. And um, I just always felt like I didn't really fit in. Even with my older sister, I looked up to her so much, but she was Mexican and, and dark skin and dark colored and just like this really tough, tough person. Um, and, and so for a lot of my life, I felt like I just really didn't know where I belonged. Um, and so as soon as I used meth, uh, there's a little bit of backstory behind that too. So, um, both my parents are addicts and, and my mom, um, was a meth addict as well. And it wasn't about until I was 12 that I started realizing, you know, there's stuff going on in the house. Like all the adults are going to the bedroom and closing the door and they come out and they look like super hot or super happy. And, and, you know, and so it was almost like, what's going on in that room, you know, and curiosity kills the cat. And so um, when I realized, realized the dynamic going on in my house and, and then the group of people that I was also hanging out with, when the opportunity presented itself, it just seemed natural. And, and so um, I, I, never, I never went back, I guess. I, I used meth and, and that was kind of where my, um, where my direction and all of my energy went to. Um, but very quickly, I got in trouble, very quickly. So the first time I was ever locked up was 15. Um, I actually went to court for truancy for not going to school. Um, and I was, I showed up to court in a, an Adidas blue jumpsuit, totally not professional. I had the worst attitude you could ever imagine as a juvenile. So I'm not like being respectful to the judge. I'm going back and forth with the judge and just trying, I felt like I was trying to create this reputation for myself. Right. And, and the people that I looked up to the reputation was, you know, hard, thug life, you know, trying to be just an outlaw, I guess, so to speak. And that was something that really intrigued me. A badass. So, 
Yeah, a badass. Yeah. Okay. Um, and ironically enough, uh, my first experience in, in the juvenile detention center, they ended up sending me to Odyssey House Juvenile, um, the adolescence program. So my first experience ever with Odyssey, I was about 15 years old and I only lasted 30 days. I was like, it was a culture shock. It was just so crazy to me. I couldn't understand, like you can't talk to people without 50 people breaking for you. And so at that point I was like, I'm just not gonna talk to anyone. And um, so, you know, a good 30 days, I decided to run, you know, go locker from the treatment center and it was just this whole revolving door and cycle. So I would go on the run and I would get arrested and I would go to DT and then they would put me in a treatment center and I would run from the treatment center and I would be on the run and then I would get arrested. And that, that literally was what my life looked like from the age 15 to 19. Um, I'd been out, I'd been sent to Iowa from a judge of mine that I had. He kind of was like, you know, there's no more programs left for you to do here and you're not really compliant. So you have two options at this point. And at this point, I believe I was 16 turning 17. Um, and he was like, you know, we have something called it. I don't know what it's called now, but it was Decker Lake back when I was younger. Um, right. Or we have this other program, but it's all the way in Iowa. And it's, it, it was called Forest Ridge. It's kind of like a it's an all girls program and they send all juvenile women there from all different states. So that's where I, that's where I got sent was Iowa. And I was there with women from Florida, from Indiana, from Minnesota, from Nevada, from Utah. And it was just like a collection of, you know, kind of, you know, the worst in, in the system's eyes, the worst type of, of juveniles. And we filled up an entire high school, uh, uh, an abandoned high school that they had. And it was right on the, the border of Iowa and Minnesota. It was in this little town called Esterville. And um, it was pretty amazing. They broke us up in cottages and there was like a behavioral cottage. And then there was a, uh, a substance abuse cottage. And that was the one that I went to. And then there was a mental health cottage and there was um, some other cottages. And and we, you know, I was there for a really long time. I was there from, I think I turned 17 there and then I didn't, I wasn't able to come back until I was um, 18. And so that was a pretty different experience for me. Um, when I came back to Utah from the program in Iowa, they decided to put me into a proctor home. Um, and still to this day, I talk to this family. These people were like God sent angels to me. What's um, a proctor home? A proctor home is a little bit different than a foster home. So a proctor home is somewhere you get sent temporarily because you're deemed the problem. You were taken away from your family because you couldn't live life in a civilized way. Um, and so it's, it's not, DCFS wasn't involved. It was more of the courts and the judges and the systems on that end because I was the one always getting in trouble. So that's the difference between a proctor home and a, and a foster home. And during all this time, like your teenage years, were your parents still using? Yes. Yes. So um, my, my biological dad has been in prison since I was like four in and out. And I don't really know him. However, my stepdad raised me since I was four. Um, also active addiction and alcoholic. And yes, they were, they were still using. Yeah. I've yeah. always had this question of, of okay, if you, if you 
figured out that they're going in in the other room to do meth and everything, when they found out you were doing meth, did you get it from them or, or where'd you get it? And then how did they respond? I mean, it'd be hard as a parent if, if I'm a meth addict and I find out you, my daughter, are, are doing meth, it'd be hard for me not to be hypocritical and say, you can't do that. Yes, very good point. Um, I like that you bring that up. It, so when my mom realized what I was doing, um, at first she tried to put her foot down and, and for good reason, right? Even though she's in active addiction, she's probably like, hey, I'm trying to save you from what I know to be true. Um, however, with my mentality and my attitude, I, I just fueled that with like, you have absolutely no room to tell me what to do or how to act or whatever the case may be. So I would run away from home too, just to avoid that conflict. Um, and then there was one day where I came home and I was like, you know, I'm kind of sick and tired of sleeping at other people's houses and, and, and not really having nowhere to go. So can I come home? And, um, at, at that point, I don't, I don't really know what my mom's, um, reasoning or justification was, but I did start getting high with her. So, um, at, at that point it was in house. And, and, you know, looking back now too, I'm just like, I was trying to get what I wanted. And that was the only thing that was important to me. It, nothing else was important to me, not having a healthy family or, you know, good, not good parents, but, you know, parents that are going to tell you what to do and, and try to give you the, the direction of life that you should go. I just wanted to make sure my needs were getting met. And, and so I blackmailed my mom a lot. I, I used that as in my defense against her. And um, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty chaotic uh, time. But again, I was always, always in and out. Like I, I missed my, my two younger sisters growing up 100% because I was not present when I was there. And it was such a short-lived experience every time I was ever home because I was either in detention or in another state in a program or in other programs. And so um, it was hit and miss, but every time it, it, um, there was some sort of unhealthy dynamic going on, so. Wait, you have just described a very bleak beginning that, that some people would say, there's no way she'll ever pull out of this. So how did, you, and, and you have, how'd you make the transition from badass to good ass? Yeah. So, you know, just really quick, um, I ended up graduating high school with my class with an academic letter. I had to make up a whole, I think it was my freshman year, my senior year. Um, and, and I was still in the proctor home when I was doing this and I was sober. Um, and I, and, and so I, I, I didn't graduate till I was 19. Cause like my birthday falls on that weird, whatever. So I was always the oldest one in my class. Um, now, with that being said, when I graduated, I had to go back into court. And at that point, I thought they were going to, you know, terminate me successfully because I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And I, I had a really rude awakening when I went to court. I mean, I, and I was I was like full of like just, you know, motivation and, 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 and power. And my judge looked at me and was like, you know, you've been doing really good, but your history tells us that you do do good in structured, structured environments. And as soon as you have no accountability, you're off and running again. So I'm not going to terminate you. And because I was in the system under JJS, which is Juvenile Justice Services, they can keep you till you're 23. Like, like, and, and I couldn't wrap my mind around that. I'm like, I am a grown adult. 
and I feel like I've done what you've asked me to and all I'm asking in return is my independence. And when they didn't give that to me, I did not deal with it very well. And so um, very quickly, I decided in my mastermind brain, you can't be in both, system, both systems at one time. I'm an adult, but I'm in the juvenile system and this is very confusing for me. So I'm gonna go catch a charge as an adult and they'll have no, they'll have no choice but to let me go. And at the time, I thought this was like the best plan I'd ever made in my life. However, what I didn't realize is I now just graduated myself into the adult system by choice. So I went and got a, um, a shoplifting charge and I was very, very, you know, um, not trying to hide it because I was trying to get the charge. Um, and so anyways, long story short, they uh, unsuccessfully terminated me from the juvenile system, but now I was in the adult system. And from 19 to 20, I had relapsed. Um, I had moved out of the Proctor home and I was living with some friends. Um, and I had met this guy who I ended up getting pregnant by. Um, and that, and it, that whole relationship only lasted for about a year, a year and a half, but it was all addiction and, and me pregnant and, and having a baby. And, um, I had my son at 20 or yeah, I had my son at 20. And then by 21, I was in prison on a five to life Ooh. and I did six years in prison. So, um, it, it very, you know, I look back and it, it, it was just very fast moving and, and I was directing the path that I was going on. Never in my life did I ever think I would end up in prison on a five to life. Never. I mean, I thought maybe I might end up in jail a few times, but never prison. Um, and so I had my son. Um, there was a situation that happened with, with the, the dad and um, the dad was from Mexico on a visa. He got deported. And so I had about six months where I was still fresh out of the juvenile system, didn't really know how to function as, as an adult yet. I now had a brand new baby. I had my addiction um, and I started hanging out with my sister and some of the crowd that we were hanging out with and they were gang, gang members. Um, and I was just such in a down and out place. I remember, I, I just, I didn't see anything fixing anything for itself in my life and I couldn't stop using. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew I had some resources from, from my juvenile experience, but I didn't have a whole lot of resources now being an adult and a single mother and, and all of these things. And so um, I decided one night that I was gonna go rob taco time at gunpoint and um, my co-defendant ended up sh shooting uh, an employee and the bullet is now stuck in her spine. Um, I was arrested about a day later and um, I, I, I got sent to prison and I did six years. It's um, the, the math and the behaviors, right? Became your identity and you, yes. you you work to try to change that, but when you felt let down, you went to what was comfortable for you. Yes, I did. So you end up in prison and then what happens with your son and what happens when you get out of prison? So um, my son was left in the care of my older sister and my mother. And when we realized I, you know, still sitting in jail, waiting to go to get sentenced, I still had this like 
denial and avoidance and almost optimistical thinking like they're not going to send me to prison this is like my first time you know being in trouble as an adult not taking into consideration my huge rap sheet as a juvenile that i created for myself um and and so about a year in to me um sitting in jail and i finally got transferred to the prison and sentenced i got this really long letter from my mom and you know Hindsight, I, I respect where she was coming from and, and, I, and I understand now, but when I was in prison and I was reading the letter, I totally didn't understand. And she was like, you know, I wish I could take care of your son, but we both know that he, he'll be fed and he'll have somewhere to sleep, but he's not gonna get the love and the attention and everything that he needs. Um, and so she did, I didn't want him, I, I mean, I didn't, I was really in a powerless situation at that point. Like once you're in prison, you're not getting out. And so she didn't want to give him up to the state. And, and my sister was in, everybody at this point was in this huge, just snowball effect of addiction and how it affected our family. Um, and so the only thing I could think of was try to find his dad. Cause if he can't be with me, you know, maybe he can be with his dad. And so she did some footwork and she got a hold of his dad down in Mexico and um, jumped on a Greyhound and drove all the way down to the, the border in Arizona and handed my son off to his dad. And my son has been in Mexico ever since. He will be 12 years old this year. Um, I have seen him twice. Uh, he speaks no English and I speak very broken Spanish. Um, and so it's the language barrier is a little difficult but my son is healthy and he is the cutest kid and he's very well mannered and he is a spinning image of me which is I just think you know one of the most amazing things and um yeah he's you know I, I I'm, I'm just grateful that he was able to not necessarily have to suffer my choices that I made and and that's what's most important to me now so um very healthy kid We've got about eight minutes left, and we've talked about all the negatives in your life. And let's get to let's get to your the, Rachel's description of all the positives that are going on with you right now. Yes. Okay. So, um, long story short, I I get out of prison, um, I relapse, and then I get an opportunity to come to Odyssey House. So uh, I. I walk into Odyssey House and at first, because I'm so treatment savvy, because I've been through all these treatment centers before, I think I have it under wraps, you know? Um, and, and I just, I take the program really slow and I end up recreating my lifestyle in treatment. And so, because I can show up and I can be articulate and I can take direction and I can help delegate, I use that as a mask and a distraction to avoid what was really going on. Now, this is why I love Odyssey, because I felt like I finally met my match, because my whole entire life, I feel like sometimes I've been made an example of because I do present myself very well, but I make choices that make people sit back and think like, what is wrong with this lady, right? And so when I say I met my match is there are some very strong, um, just inf influential people inside Odyssey that when they speak their truth, you can't deny it. Like it just, it hits your core. Like the conviction just overpowers any lie and any deceit and any try to, you know, fake that you're trying to present. And so um, I probably wasted, well, I don't, I wouldn't say wasted, but 
I, I probably messed around for the first six months of my experience trying to be two-faced, I would say. And the, the, moment, the, the moment of clarity came when I had to hold people accountable. And that was really hard for me because I was very stuck in the con code and the criminal mentality. And if it wasn't for Damon Harris, um, I probably would have never, ever leaned into the encounter process. But he had such an impact on me and, and hearing, seeing a man of that stature and telling me like, this is your opportunity for your truth to be heard. So if you want to avoid that, that's on you. You're going to end up living a life in, in these lies and stuff. And these, these friendships that you think you have here based on superficial, you know, things is, is just that it's superficial. Nothing is, you don't have anything of value because you haven't created anything of value. And that really spoke to me. Um, and so I had to hold a lot of things accountable. I had to hold myself accountable. I had to hold a lot of peers accountable. I had to face feeling like a snitch and a rat and really find out what it is to be able to speak your truth, regardless of what anybody will think or say of you. Um, and that was a defining moment for me because my whole entire life I had been either the let's go do this and like recruiting people like come on come on it doesn't matter if it's a bad idea let's do it let's do it let's do it to now this person that's like hey this isn't okay and this isn't okay for a multitude of reasons but mainly because I am I have no drugs in my system I have no excuse anymore and I'm still functioning and acting the same way I was on the streets there's a problem with that like this is more deeper than just drug use this is like a full person problem that I have going on um, and so that really opened up a doorway for me. And I just started using the leadership and the power I had in my addiction for my recovery. And, and I just tried to match that energy because I always know, I've always known that I have, um, I have the skill or, or the gift to change the energy in a room and, and to be able to get on people's level and, and become very relatable but I was doing it for wrong reasons. And so when I was able to learn how to do it for reasons that are gonna sustain success in my life, I just felt like that was the answer I'd always been seeking for and just never really had it laid out in, in terms where I could grasp and really, really um, use, use, so. And now Sherry, you are using that daily and making a difference in clients' lives. So where are you sitting today and what are you doing? Yes, so I graduated Odyssey um, and I also was offered a job when we opened up the newest facility, facility Meadowbrook. Um, and I was like so honored. I When I graduated Odyssey, I never anticipated working for them again because still, you know, as much as I overcame and worked through, I still didn't, I was like, I'm not that, worthy or, you know, however I told myself when I'm talking to myself. And, and so when the job opportunity presented itself, I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is such a blessing and an honor. Like, of course I'll work for you guys. And um, so I am the peer support supervisor at Meadowbrook. And it's just, I love, I love my job. I love my position. I feel like I get to come every single day and I meet the new people. I'm the first face they see when they walk into the building and I get them settled in. And then I'm also blessed enough to be the person who takes 
um, clients to transition out when they go to sober living. And so for me, that's such an important part. So I get to pick you up when you're fresh off the streets and you don't know what you're doing. And I get to drop you off when you get to go back into society and try to figure out how to live life. And I mean, there's no words for it. So you're an amazing person. You Thank really you. are. You know, you. and, and <laughs> you're, you're like a child of Odyssey. You went to the adolescent house and then you screwed up and then you came back to adult residential Then you graduate and now you're back here working for Odyssey. Yes. Yes. I'm very blessed. I, I feel very blessed. Um, my, my older sister is also a graduate of Odyssey too. All right. So it's like, even in our family dynamic, my younger sister is sober now. Um, my mom still struggles in active addiction, but we, it's like, we get it. She sees the difference and she sees the change and, you know, she's, and so it's just an overall life-changing experience, but I mean, it works. And I, I, that's just amazing because a lot of people struggle to find their truth. And had I not came to Odyssey, I don't know that I would have. Well, and, and what strikes me is that you have learned to love yourself. Yes, yes. I yes. can tell just from everything you've said. And you didn't love your old self, really. No, I was just trying to survive with a bunch of stuff I didn't know how to process. Well, it's like you had this leadership, right? Like this, this intuition inside, you are definitely a leader, but you were using it, you know, like in the wrong ways. And then once you figured out, wait, I have a heart, I am worthy. Now you're using it for the greater good. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and that's so relatable to everyone else right you you find such strong personalities such creative people inside these walls and you, you just want to sit them down and be like I want to shake you I wish you could see what I can see you know and and we know we can't force anything on anyone and that, that's another thing that I like but we always wrap back around we never forget right we'll give you time you can adjust you can process it if it doesn't work for you no no worries you know but if it does I want to help you get there because I wouldn't have been able to get to where I'm at without Rachel. Rachel was a huge, huge, huge part of, I, I met Rachel actually when I got out of prison at FTR for the very first time, completely outside of Odyssey. And so, you know, it's, it's very powerful. And I love, I, I know we're running out of time, but I'm just going to say, I think it was this weekend that I stumbled across the Odyssey house journals on YouTube. I, I work here. I'm a graduate. I know I'll be the first one to say I had no idea we had our own YouTube channel. And as I was watching it, I was like, I need to bring this into the building. Like, how can I allow the clients to see this? And so I reached out to Rachel and asked for permission and was like, you know, I want to run. I want to have a group on this. I want the clients to see that this is possible. And, and, and just so I've watched a few of the journals, probably a lot of them. And uh, it's just very powerful. It is. It, it takes people in a community to get the word across and just wrap back around. And like everybody's story is enough. And I think that's really cool. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. You are extremely powerful. I'm, I'm proud to be working with you at Odyssey, even though we're doing different things. And, and obviously, you know, a, a, the great thing I, that I think about stories like this is if somebody's on the fence or has relatives who know somebody who they think would be helped by treatment, 
to watch something like this and hear what a badass you were and, and how you, how you finally, how you finally, you know, found what you were looking for. Uh, so that, and not necessarily going to Odyssey house, but going somewhere for help would be. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, you know, Odyssey was for me, but there's so many other play. I mean, the movement for recovery right now is phenomenal. I mean, it's just huge. It's, even from the time I got out of prison to now, it's extremely more, um, the awareness is more there, the, the movement, the communication, the outreach, the everything. And so um, it's and necessary. You, yeah, and you know why? It's because we're talking about it. And also because of expanded Medicaid, because yep. basically anybody who, and, and this is something that's really, I'd like to get across to people more often, anybody who wants treatment can get it regardless of ability to pay now. And that wasn't the case before. So. No, you like literally had to get in trouble if you wanted treatment. Right. I remember being stuck in those days because I had family members that wanted treatment. And I'm like, dude, unless you go commit a crime, you're right. not going to get help. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very, very happy that it's not that way anymore because our, our, um, prisons and jails are already overpopulated. And I can tell you right now, my experience in prison six years, probably 98% of the women in there all had a substance abuse problem. Sure. sure. So it, yeah. Well, thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, yes, thank you. You've been wonderful, Rachel. I, you found another great guest. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.